Well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Cody Walton. I'm the student pastor here at Grace. Uh, I'm so glad to be up here this morning. Bobby is out of town visiting his grandbaby, having a good time with his family, and I'm so glad that he gets that time away to, to rest and relax with family. So you get to listen to me today. Well, that's good or bad. I don't know. You decide. But today we're going to be looking at the advent of love in the Word of God this morning. And we're going to be in Micah chapter 7, uh, looking at the end of that chapter. There are many characteristics that people know God by, or we're going to read the scripture in just a minute, Donnie, uh, that they know God by or claim to know Him by, but I would argue that one of the most commonly recognized characteristics of God, whether it's misinterpreted or not, is His love. People um, make claims about God's love. They make claims about God because they think they know about His love. They have this worldly understanding of love. It's it's an attribute or character that you'll people here commonly say things like, well, God is loving so, or I think that God thinks this because He loves people. Or sometimes people even go to the point of justifying their own actions or their own wrongdoings with God's love. It's, it's this umbrella that we like to throw over everything to make it sound good and, and to make it seem okay. And a lot of people even now you'll see it. It's, it's uh, wrong to judge sin because God loves and God isn't judgmental and if God's not judgmental then we shouldn't be judgmental that's what people say the point is there's a misconception about God's love and and what it really is and about what he means when he says that he loves us and what he means when he says to love each other and the video we watched really hit that on the on the head that, that God's love is not some worldly ideal. It's not something that we can compare to worldly ideal. God's love isn't a pre-scripted, everybody gets what they want mentality. It's not a Hallmark movie. God's not the director of a Hallmark movie. He is sovereign over a much bigger, a much greater story, and we're part of it. He's the author of the supreme love story. And as we study Christmas and we look at the coming of Jesus Christ, it is the beginning, not really the beginning, it is the action of that love story coming to life, literally. So let's look at Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for the time that we have just to come here today and just to open your word to worship together in song and, and prayer and, and, and to sit here and just listen to what you have to say to us this morning through your word. Father, I pray that you'd use me as a vessel and you'd hide me behind your cross. Father, I pray that people wouldn't hear me or see me, that I wouldn't be a distraction, but they would hear you and see what your word says about this incomprehensible topic and concept of your love. So, Father, I pray that you would just bless this time to open our hearts and our minds and help us see clearly more of who you are and who we're supposed to be. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> See, through all, out, all of God's story, humans have messed up. 
One thing that we really try to drive into our student ministry is the gospel and what the gospel is. And we constantly are referring them back to the very beginning when God made man and woman. And the one thing they were not supposed to do, they did. Right? God said, do not eat of this fruit of this tree. And then the next minute, literally, when we read it, I don't know how long it took, but they were eating the apple, right? Or the fruit, whatever it was. Men were set up for success. He gave us everything we needed, and he gave us one command to follow, and we just failed. Now, I don't necessarily believe that they had the immediate idea of let's just completely disobey God. When you read the story and the narrative in Genesis, Eve is deceived by Satan, and Satan tells her how good it will be and tells her all these things about that God is lying to her, misconceiving her about who she really will be if she just eats of the fruit. I don't think Eve was like, well, I'm just going to completely disobey what God said, and I don't care what he said. I I think that she failed because she didn't ultimately trust that God loved them enough to ultimately provide everything they needed. And because of that, she was tricked. Ultimately, I would argue that all sin is a result of a lack of faith. And most of the time, and especially in our society today, faith is lacking because people don't believe that God loves them enough to tell them what they really need. But what did God do when humans failed him? What did, what did he do when we disobeyed him? Did he go, well, that's it, the story's over, no more. No, he didn't. He, he gave them what we call the, the proto-evangelium. It's, it's the prototype of the gospel. It's the first telling of the gospel. And when God tells Eve that <clears throat> the seed of her flesh she's going to give a birth from her seed and it's going to crush the head of the serpent it's a promised child i don't know how many of you know about biology but women don't have seed and so when we look at the christmas story you know and the miraculous conception it all makes sense because in today's world it takes a man and a woman to make a baby not just one um and, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that promise that he gave Eve, the promise that he gave Adam, the promise that he gave the nation of Israel that one day there was a child coming that would reconcile them and save them and, and remove their transgression from them. So I think there's a lot of things that we can learn about God's love as we study God's word and look at how he's dealt with people through generations and generations. But today I want to hone in on four things that I think are true about God's love according to his word. So the first thing that I think that we see is that God's love is patient. God has patiently loved us despite our constant failure, constant failure to love him back. God hasn't stopped loving us and he hasn't stopped seeking to restore us. Even though we've constantly failed him, and even though we've constantly spat in his face and done against what he's done, he's, he's constantly loved us and sought our restoration. And it's like he says in this passage, who is a God like you who just pardons iniquity and sin and passes over our transgressions? That's what God has done. He's continually loved us, even though that we've time and time again not loved him. He's sought restoration for us, and he's shown us his love. And, and then we look at the book of Exodus when, when God redeemed Israel from the wilderness and he saved them not from the wilderness, from, from uh, Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness, and he saved them from their slavery. And then the next minute, they're literally like, well, we should have just stayed in bondage because this isn't well. And they didn't trust that God was in control. 
and and they're they're so crazy that Moses is like, I'm done with these people. Like I don't, you can have, I can just take me out, right? But we learn in Exodus that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And even though these people constantly were bickering and complaining, and nothing was good enough, He loved them. He provided for them. He He rescued them from the wilderness. As we go into the through the rest of the narrative of the nation of Israel throughout history, he rescues them and, and, and saves them from those things. And they get to the promised land. And then time and time again, they keep messing up and keep messing up and keep messing up. But God is right there. Does this mean that God thinks it's okay to mess up and keep sinning? No. The Apostle Paul uses one of the strongest words in the Greek language when he says, should I keep on sinning that grace may abound? And he literally said a word that we probably shouldn't say in church nowadays. I don't know what the word is. It's in Greek. But in our language, it's very strong. Paul said, by no means. You don't do that. It doesn't mean that you get a free pass just to keep living how you want. But God's still going to love you. And... and and his people, he constantly pronounced judgment upon them in Israel and in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's giving us the Holy Spirit of God to convict us of our sin and to guide us into the way God wants us to live. God doesn't think it's okay just to keep on sinning and living how we want to live. But he doesn't give up on us. And even though we keep messing up and think they were messing up God's plans, God's plans are never thwarted. They're never messed up. God doesn't make you... In curate the story of your life and then look at you when you mess up and go dang it I guess we have to start all over he doesn't do that God didn't look at Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden and go man I didn't think that was going to happen <laughs> what are we going to do now you know he didn't do that He's, you know he, he was God he, he knows all things and sees all things and everything is going to work according to his plan and when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's just who he is. So God's love is patient with us. Nextly, we see that God's love is just. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, we learn that God is slow to anger, but great in power. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. His love is perfect. It's not flawed or skewed according to human insight. He's both fully loving and fully just. His love is perfectly in line with his character and it's never going to fall outside of his character you know we ask questions in in philosophy and when i was in college we studied dumb things like can god sin well you got one guy one part that says well no god can't sin and you've got the guy over here going well does that mean that god can't do everything (laughs) and then you know you go back and forth and back and forth and you talk about all these things that really are kind of irrelevant and the, the actual answer is is that Well, God can do whatever he wants, but he's got a character that he's given himself and he's defined himself by, and he'll never go against that character. So, it's a dumb question. God's not going to sin because he's perfect. And if sin is wrong, and God has deemed it as so, then he's not going to do what he's deemed wrong because he's God. Right? So he's perfectly just and perfectly loving. And you might ask, well, how could a loving God just do what this passage says and cast our sins into a sea and trample our iniquities underfoot. How does a God do that without there being a penalty for that sin? Well, there was a penalty for that sin and that, that penalty was death. When, when we looked at the garden and God told them, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And, and we see that immediate reaction. What happens right after they eat the fruit? Do they die like physically? No, they don't. They died spiritually. 
Right? Their, 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 their flesh had overtaken their spirit and they were now living in sin. They were out of communion with God. And, and then there is the penalty of, of literal death for sin. We see that because they sinned and because they've fallen short, they're no longer perfect and, and their bodies are degrading. The world is constantly in anguish and pain. And that's why we have all the things that we have going on in this world today physically because death was a real thing that entered the world. And death is the penalty of sin. And so that there had to be a payment for that sin. There had to be a payment for that sin. And, and God told Eve and Adam that one day that there would be an offspring from you that would make the payment for that sin. And all throughout the Bible, we look at, at the promise of a coming Messiah. We look at the promise of a coming son, the, the promise of, of the, the uh, root of Jesse, that sit on the throne of David, all these things that they promised and promised and promised that one day there was a Savior coming to redeem them. And just like this prophet in Micah, when you go back a few chapters and you read one of the most common prophecies of the, the Christian narrative, Micah and all the other prophets look forward to the coming of the Messiah who would one day take that place for them. And they didn't exactly understand, I don't think, fully how that was going to work out, but they knew that he was coming. And we look back to that moment. We, we take this time in Advent to look back to the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. The penalty for our sin didn't go unpunished. As we know, we study the Easter narrative that Jesus took our place and died on a cross for us and took the penalty of our sin in our place. And this is exactly what the Christmas story is about. It's about Jesus coming to the earth to be with us, to be our example and take our place. His justice is fulfilled through Jesus. When we look to the example of Jesus, we see how Jesus loved people constantly, and we see how he constantly also corrected their sin. We see in, in stories and in, in the Gospels over and over again when it says that Jesus saw them and he loved them, that he had compassion on them. Jesus saw people for who they really were and he loved them. But because he saw people for who they really were, he also called them to repentance. And he, he sought to lead them in the right direction. See, God's love doesn't just disregard sin. God's love sees sin for what it really is. And it enables people and calls people to overcome their sin and to live in the freedom that Christ offers. It doesn't just look over it. It doesn't disregard it, but instead calls us out of it and enables us to overcome it and to live in the freedom that is offered through Jesus Christ. That's what love is. It's, it's not tolerant for tolerance's sake. It, it's, it's being truthful and, and loving people at the same time. So it's okay to call out things that are wrong if you do it in the right way, in the right context. You should. Especially if you see your brother in Christ living in it. If you see someone that names the name of Jesus living in an unruly pattern of their life and, and condoning things that aren't okay, you should lovingly call them out on it. Because that's what Paul commanded us to do. That's what Jesus did. What did he do when he looked at the Pharisees? Right? These people who, they knew all the word, they knew the whole law, they, they proclaimed it, they professed it, they claimed to live by it. And he looks at them and says, you whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. 
you claim to know me, but you have no idea who I am. We, sh- we should call out that nonsense because in our society, there's, we've kind of got a bad rap for Christianity because there's lots of people who say they love Jesus who don't even know who he is. And acting like they know him and, and doing lots of things in his name that aren't okay. And we've seen that all throughout history. We've seen that over and over and over again. Pastor Bobby talked about a few weeks ago how the, the KKK was started as a Christian organization. What in God's green earth were they looking at? Because it wasn't the Bible. You know, we, we see over and over again people claiming to know the name of Jesus and not living like it. And God's love is just. It, it, it provides correction and grace in the same time, in the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. Right? It's just, it, it, they're not separable. And the third thing that I think we see about God's love is that God's love is unique. God's love is so rich, it's so deep, it's so wide, it's, it's more than we could fathom. <laughs> the writer in this passage exclaims in the very beginning, who is a God like you? Well, the answer is no one. There's no God in, in, in all of the stories of different religions or ideologies where th- there's no deity that comes down from their place of being and lives among their people. Right? The story of the Bible is so unique from so many different stories because there's nothing like that in all of history. There's no religion where they have a God who's both mighty and strong and humble and sacrificial. They don't, they don't have that. God's love is unique, and, and He came down and He lived for us and lived with us in something that no one would ever think that He would do, even though it's prophesied over and over and over again. And, and the God of the universe literally took the form of a baby. I don't know about you, but that's pretty epic. It's pretty unique. Um, and because... <clears throat> It's so unique. Because of God's great love, it says in Lamentations, we are not consumed because His compassions or His love never fails. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews tells us that He made Himself a little lower than the angels. Philippians tells us that He humbled Himself and came as a servant. Jesus, He could have... He could have just stayed in heaven. He could have just told us what to do, given us these commands, expected us to live this way, but he didn't. Right? He, he saw our failures, he saw our weakness, and he came and he lived with us. And he took our place and he showed us how to live like he's called us to live. And in, the Christian, in the Christmas narrative, we see the incarnation of God as a baby. I, just, I want you to try to wrap your mind around that because we say it like it's just like, oh yeah, God came as a baby on Christmas, right? Right, Jesus, like, look at this nativity scene right here. Now, Jesus wasn't white. I hate to break it to you, but he came into the form of that. Who in here has had a newborn baby before? I've never had one, but I've seen how little they are, right? They're tiny, right? Jesus came like that. Humble, weak. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't clean himself. He, he couldn't even speak yet. 
And not because he wasn't able to, but because he, he gave those things up in order to live among us and, and to serve like us. And he wasn't born in some big palace like he could have been. He wasn't born to a king and a, and a kingdom of, of earthly riches and wealth. He was born to a poor family, to a little 13-year-old virgin girl named Mary, a poor carpenter named Joseph. And they gave birth to him in a dirty stable. That's how our Messiah came to us. And like, that just blows my mind. That's that's what God did. God is both imminent. He's powerful and he could strike us down at any moment. And he is also intimate. He's powerful, strong, and mighty. And he's also personal, kind, patient, and loving. He came and lived with us, setting a perfect example for us in Jesus. And then he sacrificed himself in our place so that we could put our faith and trust in him. And though we often fail him, his grace lifts us up as we pursue him. And he has compassion on us. He loves us. He really loves us. You know, I asked um, Scott to sing that song this morning, The Love of God. It's a hymn that I love and it's a hymn that I don't often think about sometimes when I think about hymns that I love for some reason. But I, I was listening to it yesterday as I was studying. And it just it blows my mind. Donnie, can you pull those lyrics up for me? I just want to read through these. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his only son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Can you go to the third verse for me? This is the one that just, it, it gives me chills every time I read it. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry and nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. So I'm pretty analytical so I did some research and there's about 352 quintillion gallons of water in the ocean. I don't know how many zeros that is. It's a lot. You know. (laughs) Um... And he's saying it's it's a a hymn, it's not scripture, but I think that it kind of puts it in in, in a perspective that's pretty cool for us to grasp. If we fill the entire ocean with ink instead of water, so 352 quintillion gallons of ink, and you had a big piece of parchment and filled the entire sky with, I don't know how many miles that is, but it's a lot. And you, every plant, every stalk, tree, whatever thing has a stalk on it, or a quill, and every single one of you and every single pe- person in the universe were a scribe, which means you wrote professionally for a living. It would be impossible to write everything about the love of God on that, on that parchment. And we would drain the ocean of all 352 quintillion gallons of water, and we would never be able to write all about the love of God. And the scroll would be filled up, and there would be no more room, and there's still more things to write. That ink pen you're holding in your hand, if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, has 0.07 milliliters of ink in it. It's a drop in that ocean. And you could write millions of words with it. It lasts forever. Most, who here has lost an ink pen or thrown it away 
before it ran out of ink. All of us, right? <laughs> That's how wasteful we are, society. I do it too. You know, I just, it's an ink pen. I spend a dollar on it. I write with it, and I end up losing it. And find it under my car seat like two years later, and it's dried up, doesn't work anymore, right? <laughs> That's what we do. But th- this perspective is just so crazy. It's so mind blowing to me when I think about that. And it says, it goes on to say in the chorus, O love of God, so rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. That is the love of the God that we worship. That's the love of the God that we come here to serve. He's, it, it's infathomable. It doesn't make sense sometimes. But it's true. God's love is so unique and beyond understanding at, at moments. Because how does a God who is perfect, sinless, mighty, Take the form of a human baby and come and live with us. How does he do that? Why would he do that? It's because he loved us. And it's not all about us. He made us for his glory and he saved us for his glory. And he saved us so that we could do the very next thing that we're going to talk about. And that's the fact that God's love calls us to action. God doesn't just love us so that we can sit by and by and go, oh, God really loves me. This is awesome. No, God loves us and he calls us to action. So what do we do with the knowledge of God's love? We do what Jesus told us to do and we love God and we love people. It's two sides of the same coin. It's it's not possible to love God without truly loving people. And it's not possible to to properly love people without truly loving God. So what does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean to love God? Well, it means that your life is given to Him and, and you, you seek His will and His glory above all things all the time. And that's really hard to do. We mess up in that often. I know I do. And what, is it, what does it mean to love people? Well, it means to see them in, in the light of who they really are through God. According to the word, according to what he has said, that they are, they are human beings and they're either, they have one of two destinies, that they're either going to live an eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ because they've placed their faith in him, or they're going to spend an eternity separated him from him in a real place called hell. There's only two options. It's pretty easy, right? That's either they're going there or not. Now, there's complex conversations that come through that. I understand that. I'm not saying, like, you can just... You're going to heaven, you're not. You know, you can't just do that. But what I'm saying is is that that's, the reality is there's one of two options in the end. You're either going to be with Jesus for eternity or you're not. Right? There's no purgatory. There's no pay your tithes and give extra to the church and you're safe, your loved one's going to heaven. That's not how it works. And so the reality is, is that, A, we don't have a lot of time because Jesus is coming back. I don't know when, but he said soon. And he's always kept his promises, so I'm going to believe him. And it means that we've got to properly and, and, and actually convey the love of God through telling the gospel and proclaiming the truth to them. The video summed up love in this way. It says that Jesus is the ultimate standard of authentic love. He's, it says that it, it's, it's impossible to love God without loving people and it's impossible to love people without loving God. And, and I've heard it and saw it put this way recently. It says, Our faith is first and foremost about how we love Jesus. 
And secondly, it's about how we love Judas too. And that, ouch. You know, when you look at the story of the night that Jesus is going to be arrested and betrayed, you may have seen this, and it's sometimes misconstrued, but Judas ate too. Jesus washed, washed Judas's feet too, and Jesus looked at Judas and loved Judas too. Didn't treat him any different. Now, does this mean that we are, should act okay with and, and be comfortable with people constantly spitting in the face of God and betraying God before our eyes? No, it doesn't mean that. But does it mean that we should recognize that we too were once sinners, alienated from God, hostile in our mind, and the list goes on and on and on of things that were true about us before Christ, and say they can be changed too. Because the gospel is strong enough God is strong enough. God is good enough. His love is powerful enough and it's perfect enough to change the wicked hearts of man. That's, that's the truth of the gospel. That's, that's what the Christmas story is about. I love Christmas traditions. I love singing Christmas carols with my family sometimes. and I love watching Christmas movies. Every year we have Elf Night where we drink Coca-Cola and eat spaghetti and watch Elf. And we have Polar Express night where we get in our pajamas. We bought matching pajamas this year because we're that family. And we're going to watch the Polar Express and drink hot cocoa. And we go to TNT Farms every year and watch the Christmas lights. You know? And we, we do that stuff. I love it. It's corny and it's fun and it's comfortable. But you've got to be careful not to lose sight of what it's really about. I love giving gifts and laughing. And obviously I love eating food. It's part of who I am, right? But the reality is it's, that it's not so much about receiving. It's not so much about being comfortable. It's about defying the standard like Jesus did and proclaiming the truth of God's love to the world in the proper context, through his word, through the gospel, through truth. That's what Christmas is about. And so don't lose sight of that as we, as we move into the rest of this Christmas season. As we get to Christmas morning, which I'm excited for, and I'm really glad that we get to be together as the family of God on Christmas morning. And I want to encourage you to be here because it's really easy. And I'm not going to lie, when I first heard that Christmas was on Sunday, I was like, you know. And then God really convicted my heart because I was like, what are you doing? This is what it's all about. And it's like not talking to your wife on your anniversary. Some people do that, and their marriages aren't good, right? <laughs> right? And so ignoring the being in communion with the family of God on Christmas morning and worshiping your Savior, that's like not trying to call anybody out or make anyone uncomfortable. That's where you should desire to be on Christmas morning if you're able to, because that's what it's about. And so anyway, that's... That's what I've got. So we're going to move into a time of commitment, and I'm going to pray. And if you want to talk or you want to pray or you have any questions, feel free to come talk to me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for this time that we have to be together and just to, to worship you and just to open your word and be together. Father, I pray that you would just help us continually seek you and to be the people that you've called us to be as we just go through this Christmas season. And Father, I pray... And if anyone doesn't know you, they don't, they don't understand the Christmas story and what you really did. 
they would come to a saving knowledge of you today and they would place their faith in you because they've realized or they're starting to recognize the love that you have for them. Father, I pray that this church would, would rally around each other and help each other pursue God's calling on us to live and to love, to show people and to proclaim the gospel for your glory so that people, so that men and women and children would come to know the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.